Happy Monday. I'm Charlie Sykes. Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am sitting just outside of West Bend, Wisconsin, and our guest today, David Frum, is talking to us from Ontario. So, uh, and we're both right near the lakes. So it's kind kind of a quasi Great Lakes International Podcast. David, would you say that? Uh, yes, I am looking at um, Lake Ontario, and across the lake from me is um, Rochester and Syracuse. I'm in a part of the world where. Um, as far as my neighbors are concerned, the greatest mistake uh, the Americans ever made in public policy was ending prohibition. Uh, because so long, <laughs> because that was a time when a man with a motorboat could make a living. Well, I'm uh, I'm not looking out across a great lake. I'm looking out across a very small lake, little green lake, and I'm looking out. Well, actually, I can't really see it from here where I'm I'm sitting, but. Um, people have put their Trump flags back up. So it's, it's that, it's that kind of America. So anyway, I'm just outside of Milwaukee. Of course, we're, we're getting ready for the Bucks to win the, the NBA championship in six games. And on the radio this morning, they were reporting that, uh, tickets for game six are going the, I guess the resale value used to be, uh, Used to be called something else. The resale value is uh, seventeen thousand dollars. That's the asking price: seventeen thousand dollars for a ticket to a basketball game, which actually got me thinking about JD Vance and the <laughs> battle, uh, and, and and the battle against the elites. Because JD Vance is hanging out, it turns out, with the kind of people that might have that kind of pocket change. Uh, you probably saw the story. Long way from Appalachia, JD Vance, who is the populist flavor of the moment, is. Uh, is in the Hamptons this weekend, mingling with uh, titans of industry like Jim Tisch, Rebecca Mercer, Steve Price, Heather Higgins, hanging out at the uh, East Hampton home of Emil Henry, former Treasury Secretary, who's apparently kind of a, a kingmaker. And so, I, I, I guess the elites aren't. You know, the battle against the elites not is not what it used to be, is it, David? I, apparently, you can be in from Appalachia, you can wage war against the elites, and then and then you hang out with with the fat cats, who I guess are not elites, what? I, can you sort this out for me? I find it difficult to be um, dismissive of J.D. Vance. I've known J.D. for a long time. And in fact, I believe his very first byline, which was under a pseudonym, appeared on a website that I operated a decade ago. Um, and I, um, that what became Hillbilly Elegy started off as the foreword to a book of public policy ideas about addressing rural poverty and many, and he wrote many of those ideas mm -hmm. for my website. And so, so they, and what ha happened was the publisher said, write a, a personal forward and then said, okay, let's throw away the public policy parts. Um, and I've, so I, I've known him for a way back and I admire him enormously. And I, I have long thought that he was I, like so many people, I thought he was an important part of a Republican future. And I find it difficult even to blame him exactly because what he didn't make the world. He has to operate in it. And then the world is what the world is. And he did in 2016 take courageous stances against Trumpism. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and he's a remarkable person, um, and someone who did haul himself out of a very difficult situation and by, by guts and determination and, and achieved incredible things. And he would be a great United States senator if he were allowed to be, and he can't overcome the obstacles. But I don't, I don't, I don't like personalizing this to him because really, what is he supposed to do? Well, I, I don't know. Be not be a complete 
Shill and Toady. I mean, a lot of this is, is circumstantial. Yes, it is the nature of our politics, but it's also choices that uh, that he's making, and he's yeah. and, he, and he's making the, he's making them good and hard. He doesn't have to go out and and be a uh, Twitter troll, does he? I mean, you know, can't can't have- you run with a certain degree of intellectual integrity? He, does, he the Twitter trolling is a, is a mistake. He doesn't have to do that. I'm, I'm not saying this to defend him because I, I'm heartbroken about it. Uh, but he's running to be a U.S. senator from Ohio. It's a super Trumpy state. The money is super Trumpy. He needs the money. It's going to be a very difficult um, primary challenge. He's not at all guaranteed to win. Um, and uh, and he's and he um, and he doesn't want to lose. He doesn't want to lose and he wants to be a senator. He doesn't want to wait for the future. He wants to be a senator now. And um, he's, he's signing, he's signing on the line, which is dotted. He's pricked his finger. He's drawn the blood. Um, and in his own, <laughs> and he's signing on the line, which is dotted. And there's no Daniel Webster who like in the short story is going to redeem him. I mean, he is making choices and he's accountable for them. But I, I just, there's a different world. There's a different world in which if, a lot of other people had done things differently, that J.D. Vance would be this tremendously hopeful figure in the Republican Party who had liberated himself from some of the um, outdated ideas of the Reagan era, who could represent people who need representation, and who's a person of lar- had the potential to be a person of large, broad ideas. And he, but, it, but that's what makes it, that's what makes it so tragic in some ways, doesn't it? Because right. there was so much potential. And so that, that delta between what he could have been and what yes. he is becoming also just, you know, at this particular moment, watching what the, the fate of all of the other folks who have signed this Faustian bargain yeah. and for somebody with his talents to step up and go, yeah, the, I, I want to do that too. I want to yes. I want to get in line between all these other guys who are pricking their finger and signing the contract <laughs> in in blood because it's worked out so well for them. I mean, right. who wakes up and says, you know what? My great ambition in life is to behave like Lindsey Graham. Yeah. Um, and I know that's true. I mean, so no one is talking. Uh, no one is having these conversations about Josh Mandel, who's another one of the candidates in um, Ohio for the Ohio Suns. He's, he's, he's a joke. He's always been a joke. He's nothing but a joke. Um, and meanwhile, Jane Timken, who's the person who may well win, um, we recognize her. She's um, a very ambitious, capable uh, Harvard-trained lawyer, married one of the richest men of the state, um, longtime funder of Ohio Republican causes. Um, and she, you know, uh, she's doing business with Trump in a way equal to equal um, that She's making a cynical. She's making a cynical deal, but she's going to be very capable of reneging on that deal. <laughs> and, and she's got the independent resources to get away with reneging on that deal once she gets the seat. Um, JD is at a point of kind of no return. I mean, he is a person with uh, with more potential than either of the other candidates, but way less margin for error in his personal life than than a Jane Timken has. And uh, um, and so. You know, he's he's a, he's both a cause of the national dysfunction, but he's also a casualty of the national dysfunction. Well, speaking of the national dysfunction, um, we wake up today and actually every day over the weekend is seeing the uh, the coronavirus numbers beginning to spike again as the Delta variant uh, continues, particularly in areas of the country that, that have very, very low vaccination rates. And very clearly, this is dividing along ideological, uh, even 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 partisan lines. And yet the flood of disinformation continues. And, and I think you had a tweet over the weekend pointing out, you know, the disinformation didn't just happen. Right. It was, it was, it was done consciously. It was, uh, 
it was important. Well, give me your, 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 your take on all of this, because we're seeing this play out in real time. And it does seem like nothing, nothing is, uh, is, is, is affecting the motivation of the people who are still putting it out. Um, so I'm speaking to, as you mentioned at the beginning, from Ontario. And over the past week, Canada just overtook the United States in the percentage of the population that is fully vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, it did this from a laggard start. It did this. Canada doesn't have much in the way of um, vaccine manufacturing capability, so the vaccine is all imported. Um, Canada got uh, whipsawed when some con- it originally was going to import Pfizer vaccine from Belgium, and then the uh, the EU broke those contracts, and so it had to depend on the United States. But the, of course, the U.S. government had first claim on U.S. made Pfizer vaccine, um, and so can- Canada got off to a slow start. And they for a long time they were just phasing it in with giving people one shot with a big lag before you got the second shot. And it looked like it wasn't working. And now the Canadian numbers are surging ahead of the United States. It's very important to to be aware of one thing. There is Facebook in Canada too. If Hmm. Facebook alone is the problem, then you would expect Canada to look like, I mean, I looked this up the other day. You can drive from Dawson city in the Yukon to Key West, Florida and speak the same language the whole way buy your gas at the same gas stations the whole way, same chain of gas stations, use the same credit card, use, have ba- encountered basically similar travel laws. This is a distance greater than from Cairo to Bangkok. And it's all it's two countries that speak the same language and have very similar institutions. And one is overtaking the other, even though it had a slower start. Why? And it's Facebook alone can't be the answer. So what is the answer other than that Canadians haven't been drinking the Kool-Aid? There is not a single important politician in Canada who has said Mm. anything other than get the vaccine as soon as you possibly can. And we we have some, um, you know, we have in, uh, we have many kinds of, there are conservative politicians in Canada, many different types. And um, in the province of Ontario, where I am, the premier, the head of the provincial government, which is a much more powerful job in Canada than governor of a state is in most of the states, uh, is a very Trumpy kind of figure. Um, And in fact, said he would have voted in 2016. He said he would have voted for Trump if he had been a U.S. citizen. The only politician in Canada, this is Doug Ford, brother of the famous Rob Ford. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the tragic Rob Ford. Mm -hmm. And Doug, but Doug Ford has been all in for masking and vaccination because it just seems stupid not to do it. I'm like, what's the, what's the upside? What, what, you know, he's on all kinds of, uh, there are all kinds of other cultural arguments where he's willing to wage a cultural war, but pro-pandemic disease, well, you know, what's the percentage in that? And so without elite permission, there is a limit. Yeah, and we have anti-vax weirdos in Canada. No question about that. And there, there, there have been demonstrations in Toronto against uh, mass requirements, and there is an anti-vax community. That uh, All of that, you know, we're not going to get to 100%. But uh, without elite permission, social media alone can only drive the conversation so far. That's interesting. Now, over the weekend, of course, uh, Trump issued a statement from Mar-a-Lago um, on on vaccines, essentially giving the base some of what they wanted, acknowledging, you know, that, you know, I, sort, sort of, you know, straddling this this weird paradox that uh, the vaccine was developed under his presidency and, and is being distributed under his successor's presidency. And, and, and he's kind of blaming the Biden administration that people aren't taking the vaccine because they just don't trust uh, the Biden administration. So give me your take on this weird moment of Trumpism where, and again, are you struck by how odd it is that that the Trumpists could have embraced this without yeah. any real political loss, said Operation Warp Speed, that was us, we did it, you know, let's spike the football. 
Instead, they've got this sort of weird cognitive dissonance where it was great that Trump developed it, but the vaccine's terrible. I mean, what? Yeah, I, I don't think that there are people who um, try to walk a balance, you know, both sides are to blame line that, that profess to be baffled why Trump didn't do this. Jake Tapper has been saying this a lot, but it, it really was determined that Trump couldn't advocate the, yeah. the vaccination because what, what happened was, I mean, it all starts from the beginning. Uh, which is when coronavirus begins to bubble in China at the end of 2019. And however that began to happen, I, you know, there, I'm agnostic, but however it began to bubble, it happened at a time when Trump had serious business with China, which is he was trapped in a trade war that he had started that was going badly and that he needed a face-saving exit from. And so in his relationship with the Chinese in um at the end of 2019, he had a top priority and then everything else was secondary. And so he allowed, so he had to let the coronavirus thing go in order to get exit from his trade war. And then once the coronavirus hit, um, he realized because he only cared about his own reelection and because he only thinks in very tactical and never strategic terms that he said, okay, the idea, if we can pretend and this is how he's run his whole business. If we pretend the problem isn't there, it isn't there. If we pretend my casino is not losing money, then it's not losing money. If we pretend the steak is delicious, then it's not terrible. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and so, so he, they got locked into. So he, they were, they were locked into COVID denial. For um, they treated the COVID as a, as a criticism of Trump, a, a reflection on Trump, and they were locked into the denial through 2020. So you can't make the vaccines the miracle that they are, because that would mean the problem actually was big all along. And if if the COVID is a is a miracle, if the vaccine is a miracle, then the problem was real. And if the problem was real, then Trump was unspeakably negligent over in the spring and summer of 2020. So he's trapped. Um, and so his, his instinct is always to treat it like no big deal, to rely on the power of positive thinking, to be a salesman above all. Um, and, so he, and, and so he couldn't really um, take credit for it. And then one last thing. Um, presidents are nominated by factions, but they, um, they are elected by parties, but they govern for the country. And so what typically happens, and we're seeing this with Biden right now, is they end up leading a coalition that is bigger than the coalition that, that elected them. So Biden's elected with 50 point something percent of the vote. He's got 58 percent approval, meaning there are a lot of people, um, you know, who are not really Biden Democrats who think he's doing a good enough job. And Biden is thinking about he's thinking all the time about that eight extra eight points. And that's how Reagan thought. Reagan thought about that. You know, those people who like me, even though they maybe didn't vote for me the first time. Um, Trump could never think about that. And the result of it was he became Yes, he manipulated his brace, but he was also, because he was president of 42% of the country, including the craziest 20% of the country, he became a prisoner. That, that 20% was half yeah. his base. Half See, his I think this is, this is really important to understand the degree to which a lot of Trumpism is followerism, that it, that it is not you know Donald Trump deciding what he wants to do and then having his, his faction follow him. Uh, he keeps his finger out there. To see to see where his people are going, and he knew he sensed that that kind of "don't tread on me" defiance of of, of science was something that he couldn't go get crosswise with. Yeah, here's here's an example from the Reagan years. So, 
our younger listeners will not remember this, but one of the huge issues in the election of 1980 was the uh, the treaty to return control of the Panama Canal Zone yeah. to Panama. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Carter had negotiated against had negotiated the treaty. George H. W. Bush was for the treaty. It split the Republican Party. George H. W. Bush was for the treaty, and Reagan was against it. And Reagan would, um, and it was one of the important reasons that Reagan ultimately won because the United States it felt like it was in retreat. Uh, the United States had returned Okinawa to the Japanese. Uh, there are all of these foreign uh, hostages, and it just seemed like you know, God damn it, America mm-hmm. built that canal. America should keep it. Why are we always on the retreat? Why are we always apologizing? And if Reagan had endorsed the treaty, he might have well have lost the nomination to George H. W. Bush. Hmm. It was very important to an, an important part of the Republican Party. And he went, defeats George H.W. Bush, defeats Jimmy Carter. Does he return? Does he reconsider the treaty? Absolutely not. That the reasons that made the mm. treaty a good idea, you know, now he sits down and says, okay, let's cancel the treaty. Oh, no, Mr. President, it's more complicated than that. And Reagan was able to adjust and, in effect, to say to the nationalist part of the party, let me give you something else. I'm not going to give you this. I'll give you something else. Um, maybe some, you know, and, and they accepted it because he could, he had enough power within the party to say no. And Trump actually, yeah, he manipulated people, but he also wasn't able to say no. And if you can't say no on infectious disease, you're a pretty weak guy. Where do you come down on the whole issue of mandating vaccines or uh, vaccine passports? So over the weekend, uh, the president of France imposed a a, a mandate that, that appears to have uh, succeeded in getting millions of Frenchmen uh, to to sign up for the vaccines, you know that there'd be huge blowback in this country. But where, where, what are your thoughts on on that? Well, I, I'm going to quote a medical friend of mine who said, "I'm so old, I can remember when vaccine passports were called records of immunization, and everybody oh, had, <laughs> and no one thought it was a big deal." Uh, that, that's I, my. Do you remember take going to this. school I, with, with the best of 1960s technology with that little piece of um, you know Manila cardboard and with beautiful red. Uh, handwriting when the days when people had that and Charles Sykes, you know, diphtheria. (laughs) And you had to show it to the school nurse. I actually, I do remember this. And no, there's, and all, I would just just suggest that the folks go, go online, go to your, your state health department and just type in, you know, immunization requirements for school right now, any state in the country, you know, Florida, you know, it, it goes, you know, two page, two, three, four pages, single spaced one after another. This is so routine that it's, it's kind of it, it's kind of just sort of in the background. It's, it's like white noise in the background. If you if you want to travel abroad, you need to have yeah. some sort of proof of immunization. And yet in this particular case, it's become, oh, my God, we can't do this. Otherwise, it's it's jackbooted thugs going door to door asking for your yeah. papers. Right. No. I, I'm planning a trip to Nigeria in the fall uh, for a, a reporting trip. And I'm really looking forward to not getting yellow fever. And yes. the reason I'm not going to get yellow fever, probably, is because I'm going to be vaccinated. And, and as as troubled a place as Nigeria is, they still manage to vaccinate most Nigerians for yellow fever. Uh, and that that's like civilization, right? Um, so on this one, uh, I think it probably is counterproductive to actually mandate a vaccine. But it just seems common sense. If, if you want to expose yourself to infectious and potentially deadly disease, okay, it's probably there's. I, I don't. I'm not a philosophical libertarian, but I think this is a pragmatic matter. It's probably more state power than we want to exercise to force. Mm-hmm. But you want to go to a go on a plane or a nightclub or some other crowded space, and you you want to have the right to expose other people. 
No, obviously not. So yeah, no, I, I'm all in, I'm all in favor of it. And I, I, let's just call it a record of immunization. And you have to show your record of immunization before you do things where you are potentially hazard hazard to others. Seems no, I'm I'm one of Seems uncomplicated. It, it, it would also make it just much more. Um, I mean, if, if you're a cruise ship, to be able to say to everybody, hey, everybody on this uh, this this ship um, has been vaccinated or has some sort of proof that they are Im- immune. That's good for business. That seems like a good for business position. It also seems like the responsible, practical thing to do. Hey, let's take a, a, a quick break and we'll be right back with more from our guest, David Fromm. Hey, Charlie Sykes here. Uh, just a quick reminder, if you sign up for Bulwark Plus, you will have access to our morning newsletters to JVL's Triad, uh, as well as our whole suite of podcasts. This one will remain free, but if you want to listen to The Secret Podcast or uh, participate in our live streams, uh, or others like the Next Level podcast, uh, please consider joining Bulwark Plus. Hey, we're back with uh, with more with uh, with David from David. One of the reasons I wanted to talk with you on today's podcast, uh, we've been talking about disinformation, um, what's been going on with uh, with the with national politics. You had a very provocative piece in the Atlantic last week. Um, suggesting that maybe it's time to start using the F word to describe what Trumpism has become. And I, I thought it was particularly interesting because, and by the way, the F word is not the F word you're thinking, it's fascism, is you, you've, you've been very consciously resistant to yeah. using 1930s type language to describe what's going on. So talk to me about why you think that uh, Trumpism is morphing into something that, that can accurately and maybe ought to be described as yeah. fascism. Okay, thank you. Well, f- the first thing that needs to be said is a lot of people use fascism to mean German National Socialism, plain and right. simple. And in fact, there were a variety of fascist movements not. in the 1930s, and not just in Europe, but in Latin America as well. So Peronism um, was a kind of fascist movement. There, there were fa- I, I, you can argue about whether Franco and Salazar in Portugal and in Spain and Portugal were exactly fascist themselves, but they certainly had fascist movements within their political coalitions, and similarly in Hungary and other places. Um, so the whole, um, so we need to distinguish between what is fascist broadly and what is Nazi specifically. Now, so I have been resistant to this because, um, as I always say, the, uh, one of the benefits of studying history is that it gives you more analogies to use than Hitler, Hitler, Hitler all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I, I think that, and I resisted using these kinds of terms, uh, partly because I think. Trump is above all a flim-flam man and a con man and a needy, narcissistic weakling uh, more than he is a, a, a fascist dictator of the classical sort, although Juan Perón was also kind of a weakling. Um, and he was elected in 2016 by a movement that included a lot of very conventional Republicans and some cynical Republicans. So I want to talk, I'm talking here about post-presidential, the post-presidential Trumpist movement, not Trump personally, mm-hmm. that is apologizing for January 6th. Because it seems to me that the thing that makes fascism different from other kinds of reactionary illiberalism, you know, a lot of the, you know, the kind of thing that Salazar was in Portugal, kind of Catholic authoritarian, that the, fascism has a contempt for legality mm-hmm. and a cult of violence. Violent, they fascists find violence exciting. Um, and, and they certainly use it rhetorically and even um, literally. And as we are seeing the last, the, the, the people who still support Trump making their peace with a violent attack on Congress in January in order to overturn an election. 
and valorizing it and defending it. You think, okay, this is not looking like um, even the most reactionary forms of American conservatism. This is looking like something different. One last point on this. Um, you know, people like the old, the old Southern Democratic segregationists who used a lot of anti-democratic tactics to hold on to power, um, uh, you know, the Richard Russells and, and the Strom Thurmonds, uh, they, uh, they were often accused of that, but they, they were obsessed with legality. Um, they were upset and, and they abhorred the use of violence inside the United States. And they would, they, they were, they quite separated, um, you know, the, uh, themselves from, uh, the, there were Ku Klux Klan terrorists, but, you know, they kept no company with them. And they certainly, even if they at some deep level sympathized with the aims of the Ku Klux Klan terrorists, they had no connection and would never justify it. But what we're seeing here is this is as what would have happened if those old Southern segregations in the Senate had begun actually becoming sympathizers with Ku Klux Klan terrorists, with murderers and, and, and vandals and arsonists, uh, then you would have had something that was not a legal movement. And that's what we're facing in the post-Trump. Well, that, that would be the kind of elite permission we were talking about at the beginning of the uh, the podcast. I want to stick with this, this definition of fascism, though, that fascism is not a – and correct me at any point here – but fascism is not a coherent ideology. It is not necessarily a program. It, it really is – it's an aesthetic. It is an attitude. It is a posture, which is why it's very difficult to pin down – that is this fascist? Is, the, is this not? It is. It is sort of the 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 strutting persona that you can go. Right. You know, if you if you if you see a Juan Perón or if you see a a Benito Mussolini, but it is this sort of celebration, this romantic celebration of masculinity, of violence, of smashing the face yeah. of of intellectual elites. That really does, as, as you begin to think about it and read more about it, it seems very, very familiar and but shouldn't be confused. I mean, there is a real important distinction between, which I know has kind of gotten lost for historical reasons, between fascism and Nazism. I mean, fascism yeah. is, is, is a distinct posture attitude. Um, yeah. am, am I right I, about that? I, I think that's, I think that's brilliantly put. Yeah. If you think it's, it, it, it's think of it more as a sensibility and a style and a method right. than right. it is an ideology. And so, yes. so, because fascists, unlike, um, uh, I mean, the Nazis had a very coherent ideology with race at the center and, and kind of communists who are also could be as murderous. Uh, they had a very elaborate ideology. Um, you know, a Mussolini, a, Fran a, a Franco, if you think of him as a fascist, a Peron, they could end up on any side of any argument. Um, and Mussolini started as a free trader and became a protectionist. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes, right. they, sometimes um, you know, Frank uh, Peron, you know, again, wandered about the place. Um, but th there, was a, there was a graffiti that appeared all over um, Peronist Argentina that was quoted by someone who grew up there uh, that said, save the fatherland, kill a student. Um, and... And that, I think, that's the, it's, it's the kind of, the, at bottom, it's a rejection of a rational approach to politics, um, thinking about things, it's, and a celebration of impulse and violence. Yes, it's, it's very deeply anti-reason, anti-intellectual, anti, yes, and so that, that is, that is that, that impulse. You know, and I, I will, I will tell you, you know, is that I've been reading 
you know, so some of the the, the post uh, post uh, January six writing from some of the Trumpian publication, not Trump himself, but from the people who you know purport to be, put the intellectual veneer on Trumpianism. I mean, I'm, and I'm talking about magazines like American Greatness, and I'm reading it, and I'm thinking this is unrecognizable to me in the context of most American politics. It, it's yes. got echoes of something that just seems quite alien. But when you begin putting it in the in the context of international fascism, it goes, okay, well, that's the impulse. This is the sensibility that you're seeing in this country. And again, yeah. it has nothing to do with Donald Trump himself, except that he gives elite permission to it, but it's percolating out there. You, you, you think about the alien, that's, that's very true. When we think of American politics, um, what we think of what is – there's so many variations of that wonderful song from the musical Hamilton, the room where it happened that mm -hmm. two men walk into a room and no one knows what happens in there. And they walk out with a deal. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and the deal is there's a little something here for everybody. And, and that's, you know, that spirit of compromise of hog. It's, it's often not very edifying to watch close up, you know, but, but we also, when, it, you know, after it's over, we look back on it and say, you know, the Lyndon Johnson method that, Really, that you're conditioning your support for the civil rights of Black Americans on whether you get a bridge? Really? <laughs> and I'm saying, you know what? The way we got civil rights, we got it with a lot of bridges. <laughs> yeah. that, that was the infrastructure week. Yeah. Well, there's something also very kind of like peaceful about that. A society where, you know, a, a senator or a representative, their vote is available in exchange. I need, I need something concrete, something practical, something that will make lives better for people I know. Um, and, you know, it can get gross when there's too much of it. And John McCain, you know, reacted against it in his later years. But there's also something that makes the system go. Whereas when, when it's like clashes of worldviews, um, no compromise, struggle to the utmost, um, that's not a set formula for social peace. I think one of the things that put me over the edge to writing that, um, the F word article, was there was a Twitter thread that went absolutely viral um, by a person who had a small following. I had, didn't happen to know much about him, but I, when I look back, he had kind of a boutique following on the Trumpy right. And then he wrote this thing and it was endorsed by every prominent Trumpist, Don Trump Jr. all the way down, and then read aloud on the Tucker Carlson show. And what it was, it was this collection of grievances, some rooted in reality, some completely crazy. Um, uh, some overstated, some true, some wild, uh, all of which added up to, together to say, and because of these 30 grievances we have against mm -hmm. um, some blogger or MSNBC or um, the city editor at the Washington Post, therefore, <laughs> it was not wrong for a mass movement to attack Congress and try to overturn an American election. <laughs> You know, we all have grievances. Uh, the, the, the essence of the American system is I don't care how aggrieved you are by, you know, the un, that, that speeding ticket where they flagged you down and let all the other people go. You don't get to assassinate politicians because you've got an unfair speeding ticket in your opinion. But that strikes me as the way that this this hive mind works, that it, it's, it's not linear. It's sort of a collection of, of random things that therefore add up to and therefore um, – Political violence might might be justifiable, or belief in some completely crackpot conspiracy theory might be true, and um, we need to act on. It. I mean, that that did strike me as a pretty good illustration of the way things are going. So I, I think that was a, that was a great jumping off point to say, hey, some, something's happening out here. Something's happening to the collective mind of Trump yeah. world. Yeah, um, and I don't put this all in context. 
the American state, this is one of the things that makes fascism go where it has been where it has taken power has been some kind of weakness or discrediting of the lawfully instituted authorities. There's some kind of crisis. And the, the problem that these folks are going to bump into is uh, the American state is a very strong state and the American um, experiment is going is, is successful and more successful in 2021, I think, in a lot of people's opinion than it has been for a while. So the idea that you're not going to be able to take power successfully, these ideas are crazy. And even the January 6th plot itself was a stupid plot. Um, that's one of the things that some of the more um, clever apologists for January 6th say is, well, it was stupid. It was never right. going to work. Yes, that's also true, but that doesn't make the people innocent. That just makes them dumb um, or gullible or victimized. Uh, Well, you wrote this right before we got a lot of the reports about the how deeply concerned senior members of the military were about all of this. So, so yes, you know, the the, the system did hold – but it held because we had people like General Mark Milley, who was uh, was in power and was willing to say no. And because, amazingly, Mike Pence did the right thing. Have you ever thought, what would have happened if Mike Pence would have been the Mike Pence that we'd seen for the last four years? What if Mike Pence had gone along with Donald Trump? What nothing, would have happened if— Nothing okay. would have happened. That, see, that's, that, that was the mistake that the, the plotters made. Remember, yes, Milley was concerned. There was a what, was it eight living secretaries of defense who signed a joint letter? I think like, it was more than that, yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're going to seriously overthrow the American state, uh, you'd better have massive buy-in from a lot of powerful groups. Um, and so supposing, supposing the plan had worked a little bit better, supposing they had broken, supposing Pence had gone along with it or they'd broken in and they had put the noose around Mike Pence's neck and terrorized him into saying, I repeat the magic words. You know what? The Harry Potter books are fiction. Magic formulas. <laughs> you cast the invisibility spell, I can still see you. <laughs> uh, uh, Joe Biden, a- after the, the vote, after we everyone agreed that about the, um, sw- the, the, the outstanding states, which happened about you know, the Saturday after the Tuesday vote, Joe Biden was going to become president at noon on January 20th. No matter what, no matter and no matter what. where he was, um, and this is one of the things I think Trump didn't understand. It, it's not the White House that makes you president. The president is the president wherever he is. Um, his wherever Joe at noon on January twentieth, wherever Trump was, even if he was squatting in the White House, his pen would no longer be able to convert bills into laws. And Joe Biden, wherever Biden was, his pen would convert bills into laws. The officer with the nuclear football would have wandered away. And would have materialized by Joe Biden's side, and the army would have taken Joe Biden's orders, and the um, you know, Federal Trade Commission would have needed Biden's signature on whatever orders it issues. It's, it's a giant. And so, if and if you want to stop that, it's, you're going to need more than um, the QAnon shaman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with 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 the head, I worry about next time. I I mean, it was it was obviously a cluster that they you know that that, that occurred. And they didn't have a plan. They didn't have any coherent uh, approach. But uh, as as you described, though, there is that sense now that intellectually, the idea of overthrow is becoming more normalized, at least among some. Doesn't mean they'll succeed, but it means that it could be violent. It could be damaging and. You know, One we, more thing. We, I, 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 this that, downward spiral. Yeah, go ahead. The, 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 to my mind, the biggest practical risk is not that they will succeed, but that a system that is built to, have, to be a two-party system is going to have one party that can't be trusted. Yeah. And then what you are is Italy in the 1970s, 
where the choice is the Christian Democrats or the communists. And since the communists are obviously totally unacceptable to the vast majority of the society, the Christian Democrats win every election without working. Um, and they become then a clientelistic party and they cut a lot of deals and, and they need competition. And you, you get, in a way, what you have in California, where no important decision gets the Republican Party is broken. And so the Democratic Party finds it easier to yield to the various pressure groups in a kind of backseat dealing because there's no real competition to say, what do you mean the prison guards are making $150,000 a year? Is that crazy? And you have these pensions that aren't funded and, and uh, you have homeless people pitching tents in the streets and defecating on the sidewalks. You know, somebody should stand up and, and run against those things. But when you have a one party state, small little clientelistic groups take over the, the governing party. And I, I worry our future, mm -hmm. if we don't do something with the Trump Republican party is not, it, as the Republican Party becomes more open to these fascist movements, it becomes uncompetitive and the Democrats become like the Christian Democrats in Italy, a big flabby mess that can't govern. Okay, so in the time we have left, speaking of one-party states, um, I, I, I noticed that you have been uh, tweeting out links to this uh, this Bloomberg story that, mm. uh, that, that makes the case that we have been catastrophizing the economic strength of China. I mean, obviously... The geopolitics of the next, uh, well, probably the next several decades will be determined by uh, our rivalry with, with China. And I, I sort of get the sense that there's a certain level of defeatism among Americans, that they think that we are in decline while China is this unstoppable juggernaut. Uh, you're skeptical of that. I am. I, I say this as a long time, someone who's been a long time warrior about China, um, a long time China hawk. Um, but... I feel like I've been on the highway driving my steady 60 miles an hour and cursing all the cars that are moving too slowly. And then suddenly the, the, the traffic opens up and there are all these trucks whizzing by at 90 miles an hour. I didn't mean that. So um, Americans are absolutely be aware of the viciousness of the Chinese regime um, and the cruelty and, and, and the real risks it poses to its immediate neighbors. But don't let that those justified reactions drive you into acts of self-harm and, and, and into losing awareness of what makes America so powerful. I mean, the dynamism, the creativity and the self-criticism, you know, that um, I just, just, uh, just today, there was a story that Indonesia and Thailand um, are moving away. They use Chinese vaccines and they're discovering they don't work and they're replacing them with uh, Western vaccines to the extent that, to the extent they can get them. As they work better. But all this ferocious criticism we do holds institutions and not just government to account, holds scientists to account. Um, so uh, don't get into trade wars. Don't lock yourself off from the world. Don't alienate your allies. Don't, don't start stupid fights over aluminum with Brazil. Um, what you want to do is, is focus on the genuine challenge of China, but have confidence in the things that made America so strong in the first place and believe that those are the things that will make America stronger in this, uh, going forward. China moved fast by picking up innovations that other people had created for them that they could copy. Now they have to start doing things for themselves and they're finding it harder. And there's a lot of evidence that, especially since 2010, they have been uh, faking the numbers on their economy. Um, and they're not as big as they've been making themselves out to be. They're not growing as fast and they are not going to overtake the United States. Well, I certainly remember, I'm old enough to remember as, as, as you are, um, in the late 1970s, how 
uh, how much of a you know monolith we thought that Soviet the Soviet Union was, how powerful it was, how ascendant it was militarily, and there were, of course were voices saying you know it might be a little bit more hollow than than, than you suspect, and we know we know how that played out. So give me your sense of that that it, the, the, the parallels. China seems to be more vibrant than the Soviet Union. It seems to have more tools. And, and it's, uh, you know, within within reach. But you think that ultimately it's been exaggerated. Um, I wrote a big article for The Atlantic about this with a lot of data points. But let me just point to one, um, which is the lack of any major university in China. Hmm. And hmm. Um, and the extent and, and I quote in the article, I don't have this statistic at my fingertips, but the amount of cheating and plagiarism at Chinese university. Chinese universities and the lack of creation of intellectual knowledge. I mean, the United States continues to dominate uh, the creation of new scientific knowledge as much today as it did in the 1970s. Okay, that's extraordinary. How can a country like China not have a major university? That 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 that's really remarkable when you think about it. Because the way you get a major university is by allowing people to say whatever they want. Um, to go explore, test test hypothesis, and don't worry if it contradicts some. Uh, uh, I mean, that, that all the things that that make the American university impotent, which is that there are all kinds of people saying crazy, wacky things, most of which are wrong. Um, well, that, what do scientists do all day? They say crazy, wacky things, most of which are wrong. And in the, in the context of critical race theory. Um, we all get upset in the context of molecular biology. We're unaware, but meanwhile, the system is shoot everyone's shooting everyone else down, and um, and out of this is coming publishable, checkable knowledge. And this is one of the great points of Jonathan Rauch's wonderful new book about the constitution of knowledge. That what we're doing here is we're constantly knocking each other down as a way of ever approximating um, truth, and uh, and it requires, by the way. There's um, uh, there, there's a book huh. I, I I read a little while ago. Um, I called uh, well, the, the, I think called "Will the Boat Break the Water?" I think that's the title about the Chinese peasantry, and it told this story about a peasant Chinese family who had this prodig, um, prodigy of a daughter, just an academic prodigy, and she sat the test to write, get into Beijing University, their most prestigious university, but still not one of the great universities of the world. Um, she sat the test, and she discovered when she got back. A, te- a mediocre paper. She was not admitted. Hmm. And meanwhile, the daughter of the village Communist Party chief, she got into the university. And what had happened, of course, was that for a small bribe, they had swapped the papers. Okay, so that girl's life hmm. is destroyed. Her family's impoverished and they're ruined. But meanwhile, the most talented person in the village ain't going to the best university. And the dumbhead daughter of the local Communist Party chief is going to the university. If you don't have a merit-based system, in a way of finding, especially in a society where people can't afford to pay for college easily themselves, or so many can't, you, you need to have a great talent-seeking mechanism. And that and corruption is the enemy of that. So the one thing that we could do to turn that around for the Chinese would be to shut down access to uh, the best and brightest Chinese students to come to this country. If we, in fact, stopped allowing them to come here and they had to stay home, would that perhaps change things? Well, we need to be careful. We need to understand that um, those students are under enormous pressure um, to do espionage work. We need to know that those many of those students are imbued with ultra-nationalist ideas. We need not to be you know, naive about what's going on. Uh, but the fact is that um, the, the best Chinese students end up staying here when they come. 
um, and they do and they do their good good work here. It's, it's something to manage. And I, again, I don't want to be blithe about any of this, right? Um, but but we also need to take the measure of our own strengths, and and we also need to remember that it's not the United China. It's increasingly not the United States versus China. The United States is the central part of this giant system of Western democracy. That's who are who are America's friends, the most dynamic, wealthiest, um, most creative societies in the world, and who are China's friends? You know. Well, do they have even yeah. friends? But to the extent they have them, and by the way, one of the things they is also clients. they have clients. And meanwhile, the United States has has you know nearest neighbor is Canada, nearest neighbor is Mexico. Um, one is a full partner, the other is pretty good. And China's because of its obnoxious behavior, is surrounded by enemies. Interesting. David Frum, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast today. I appreciate it very, very much. Always a joy. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again. By the way, go Bucks. Go Bucks.